There are some notes, and I've added a few more of the uh, chronological chart of the kings of the northern and southern kingdoms. And we have been studying for a show today is the 26th study, although half of those were before COVID. But thanks for your uh, comments and encouragements through this study. This will be the, the last, and unless we come back in a year from now or so and continue in Second Kings, there's much profit to be found, of course, in every passage of the Word of God. But we are in Second Kings 13. This is part two. We'll be looking at verses 14 to the end. And let's just read those verses as we begin. Second Kings 13, beginning at verse 14. When Elisha became sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over him and said, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. And he put his hand on it. Then Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. He said, open the window toward the east. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, even the arrow of victory over Aram. For you will defeat the Arameans at Aphek until you have destroyed them. Then he said, Take the arrows, and he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground, and he struck it three times and stopped. So the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Aram until you would have destroyed it. But now you shall strike Aram only three times. Elisha died, and they buried him. Now, the bands of the Moabites would invade the land in the spring of the year. As they were burying a man, behold, they saw a marauding band, and they cast the man into the grave of Elisha. And when the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. Now Hazael, king of Aram, had oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz, but The Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and turned to them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence until now. When Hazael, king of Aram, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities which he had taken in war from the hand of Jehoahaz, his father. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. Well, we haven't heard about Elisha since chapter 9. And can you imagine that from chapters 9 to 13, 43 years had passed. So most of Elisha's ministry we really have no information about. 
it was silent ever since that event when he told his servant to go and anoint Jehu. We haven't heard anything about Elisha until now, and it's his death. What an amazing story. As we move forward, beginning at verse 14, we see that Elisha is sick. He has some illness. We don't know what it was, but he is going to die with this illness. He's an older man. And Joash, the king of Israel, and we did begin chapter 13, gave us some history of Jehoahaz and then um, Joash or Jehoash. Remember, they go by both. So we had sort of an introduction to those two kings, and then this is an, an extended section telling us what happened with King Jehoash of Israel and as Elisha died, what he told the king. So when the king heard that Elisha was very sick, maybe to the point of death, he came to him wherever he was staying. He came to the prophet Elisha. And remember, Elisha had been prophesying for 60 years. Now, we just mentioned there were 43 years we know nothing about. So we heard about 20 years, basically one-third of his ministry we know about. But he had been a prophet for six kings of Israel, this being the last, um, Joash. So keep that in mind as, as we work through this. Now, we know from the earlier verse that Joash had an evil heart. Yet he came and wept over the prophet. We don't know uh, what was going on exactly, but he was an evil man. He did not follow the Lord. Yet he came to the prophet who was dying, and it says he wept over him. He didn't listen to God. He didn't listen to the prophet of God, yet he wept over the prophet of God. So think about this as we move forward in our lessons, one of eight that tears alone are no sign of true allegiance to God. Tears alone are no sign of true allegiance to God. This man did not follow God, yet he wept at the impending death of the prophet of God. Why was that? Maybe he had some sense that we're going downhill without God's prophet. He knew the stories he heard about his father and his grandfather and the previous kings, how Elisha had guided them. Maybe it was all coming to a head, but this king was evil, yet he was weeping at the death of the man of God. He was on a path of idolatry, yet here he was with the king, grieving. Yet those tears, as sincere as they may have been, were not tears of repentance. He didn't turn away from his idolatry. He persisted in that till he died. And again, we're speaking of Joash. Consider Esau from Hebrews 12. Esau, the scripture says, when he desired to inherit the blessing, maybe that's what Joash wanted, a blessing. Well, obviously he wanted something, we'll see in a moment. When Esau wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Now, I'm not saying that Joash is seeking repentance, but at least he doesn't have this true allegiance to God. He has tears. He has sincere tears. And sometimes we might think people have fake tears, but you could have sincere tears and be sincerely wrong. 
and it's sobering. And I think on, on we could balance this. We ought to have more tears and grief over our sin, but tears alone do not indicate true allegiance to God. Maybe Judas would be another example who grieved after he turned in Jesus, yet he hung himself. So it's a good reminder and warning. We'll we'll move into this first object lesson, and Elisha gave many. Remember, through his life, he would always give these object lessons connected with miracles, maybe the jar a jar and salt, his first miracle when he purified the waters. Then he called for a minstrel in another case and he prophesied. He got the empty vessels from the Shunammite and 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 uh, God filled them with oil. So Elisha would always get certain objects. He had object lessons and he used them as God performed miracles at his hands. And this is no exception. He has a picture for the king of Israel. And he says, take a bow and arrows something that was would have been there for protecting the king, uh, bow and arrows, uh, and the king does what he's told. He, he takes the bow, he takes the arrows, and then um, Elisha tells him, put your hand on the bow. And then he lays his hands on top. He He's a hands-on guy here, an older man. Think of Elisha laying his hands on the king's hands as he's picking up this bow, and he tells them, open the window, and shoot to the east. Now, what was to the east of Israel? If you have your, if you have a Bible map, or I'm sure you know, some of you were recently there. But if you look at a map of the divided kingdom or the twelve tribes, when you look east of Israel generally, what is the first foreign nation you hit? Syria or Aram. So, if you go directly east from Samaria, at least. You will hit Aram, and then you have the Ammonites, and then you have the Moabites, and you have the Edomites. So to the east was where their enemies were located. And he's giving this lesson to King Joash by saying, take the bow, uh, put an arrow, um, take an arrow and shoot toward the east. So the king does what he said. And he shot. But then this, this beautiful phrase that Elisha says to the king, the Lord's arrow of victory. The Lord's arrow of victory. Even the arrow of victory over Aram, where he was shooting toward. You will defeat the Arameans at this city called Aphek until you have destroyed them. More to come, but just a few thoughts here. Um, Aphek there was a previous battle. You can go back to 1 Kings 20.30. They defeated the Arameans there before, so it was a strategic uh, town. I couldn't find it in my maps. Maybe you can. Uh, some of these towns, it's difficult. Sometimes, uh, like Lakewood, Washington, Lakewood, California, it's the same in this small region. Several towns could have the same name, but I couldn't find Aphek. But there was a battle there that where they defeated the Arameans previously, so apparently it was a strategic city or a city of some importance. But particularly, he's giving this lesson, and we'll ask the question, where is the victory coming from? We read it, we pointed it out, it's the Lord's victory, the Lord's arrow of victory. What could we learn from this? As we read these stories, as we see this 
similar picture throughout the Old Testament, though we are not at battle physically with the enemy. But what could we learn in the second place? Let us be convinced that every victory we have belongs to the Lord. There are many passages, maybe they have already popped into your head. Let us be convinced that every victory we have belongs to the Lord. Psalm 33, 16. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by a great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. What a great picture. Or maybe in 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you have not received? Or you could change it, what victory do you have that was not given to you? The Lord gives us the victory. Just like he told the Israelites, the Lord's arrow of victory. You can prepare for a meeting all day, but unless the Lord gives you success, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. So it's a good picture. He was telling the king of Israel, shoot this arrow, and as you do this, this is a sign, the Lord's arrow of victory. So we must confess that our Lord is the victor. God is victorious. Christ is victorious in many ways. Maybe you read um, The Hiding Place. I love the story where they had over the fireplace, the father had, Christ is victor. I have it in my house. I got inspired. But we need to remember, read the revelation. God, Christ, are victorious. And we do not have any victories or success. That's why we say, Lord, help us. Bless our efforts. And even the psalm we read, the horse has Great strength. The warrior has great strength, but we don't trust in great strength. We trust in the Lord who gives the victory. The Lord is being very kind to this wicked king. It says in, in verse um, 11, He, that is Joash, did evil in the sight of the Lord. He was an evil man. Yet God is going to give victory. And Israel was on an idolatrous path. Yet God was gracious. And by the way, that's our title. Magnify the grace of God. Magnify the grace of God. And we'll hit it near the end particularly. But see it throughout that God is helping his obstinate, idolatrous people, Israel, despite themselves. He's going to give them a victory despite what they are doing. And he says, you're going to destroy the Arameans. Compare that with verse 7, when God was going to and did punish Israel by the hand of the Arameans, and it says the king of Aram had destroyed them, Israel. So God is turning the tables. On the one hand, he used Aram to destroy Israel, and on the other hand, he'll use Israel to destroy Aram. It's fascinating, these divine reversals, that God does what he pleases. He sits in the heavens and he does what he pleases. The nations are as a drop in the bucket. Well, that was the first object lesson with his explanation. The second in verse 18, he says to the king, take the arrows. Now, at first I was thinking it's like a quiver, he's got him on his back, pull out an arrow and do something else. But if you read it closely, Take the arrows, plural, 
and he took them. So imagine he, he pulled them out or picked them up. He's got the arrows in his hand and he told the king of Israel, strike the ground. Now some take this that he shot out at the ground, but he took these arrows in his hand, it says, and he struck the ground. So maybe he's pounding them in with the, the points. Maybe he's using the, the, the feathers on the ends. It's unclear, but he has this bunch of arrows and he struck the ground three times, but then those words, and stopped. He struck it three times and stopped. That's the problem. Elisha was guiding this wicked king. He already told him there's going to be a victory, but here he's going to qualify it with this second lesson. He's he's going to explain exactly what the king was to do, and the king was doing it mostly. He did what he said, he did what he said, but when he said strike it, he stopped. He did it three times and stopped. So learn in the third place that temporary acts of obedience, again, are no sign of saving grace. He has these temporary acts of obedience, as many of the Israelite kings did. They would have some success, even Jehu would do something right and is commended for it, but then in the long run, they fall away. Their obedience is temporary. You could do something temporary. It's like the seed that sprung up for a while but then withered away. It's the same here with Joash who struck the ground three times and stopped. Another warning to ensure that we have thorough obedience, not sporadic obedience. Israel, the Israelite kings and the Israelite people teach us over and over again that you can not only have one-time obedience. I did that last year. I did that five years ago. No, it, we need daily, persistent, and thorough obedience. He stopped pounding the arrows on the ground. Verse 19, what happens? What's the reaction of Elisha? The man of God was angry. It's interesting. This is coming to the end of Elisha's life, and this is, this is his epitaph over his grave, if you will. He became angry at first. I, wow, that's that's maybe doesn't sound the best way to end your life in anger. But <clears throat> there's more. So the man of God was angry with him, the king Joash, and he said, "You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Aram until you would have destroyed it. But now you shall strike Aram only three times." We don't know all the details. We try to paint the picture and see the, the bow being shot, the arrows, and and maybe he really didn't believe the prophet. We don't know. We, we were careful to read between the lines, but he stopped and Elisha, the man of God, was not pleased. So I would take this as this is righteous anger that apparently the king was unbelieving and he didn't do what he was told. He probably should have kept hitting until Elisha said that's enough. But he stopped. He stopped and he's rebuked by the prophet of God and he will only have three victories instead of a complete victory. And God said, you're going to destroy them, but the promise was contingent on Joash's full obedience and he didn't have it. 
Elisha's last action before death was rebuking the king of Israel. This was his primary role to tell the kings and the people what they should and shouldn't do. And even I went back and looked at the great grandfather of Joash was Jehoram. You can you can see it on your chart. Jehoash 798. If you count, you see his father was Jehoahaz. His father was Jehu. Jehu is a usurper, so not necessarily great grandfather, but the kings uh, three back were Jehoram and Elisha was doing the same thing, rebuking and admonishing the kings of Israel. He was faithful. Elisha was faithful to the end, even though we don't have a record of most of, more than two-thirds of his ministry, but we see him at the beginning admonishing the Israelites and the kings and at the end doing the same thing. It's a great example of faithfulness to your calling. Well, verse 20, in just a few words, Elisha died. Elisha died and they buried him. And to state the obvious, lesson four, even great and godly men will die. Why? Because it's not about us. Even great and godly men will die because it's not about us. Elisha pursued the greater blessing. He wanted to be blessed more than Elijah, and in many ways he was, yet he died. He died, stated very simply. There's no big drawn-out description. It just says he died and they buried him. Brothers and sisters, as, as we know, if we're honest, it's not about us. It's not about accumulating a name to ourselves. And even this study, I originally thought of it as the life and times of Elisha. It's not about Elisha. It's about Jehovah God. It's about Yahweh. It's about the Lord. I just read Psalm 115 this morning. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. That should be our epitaph. Or John the Baptist, speaking of Christ, he must increase, but I must decrease. Elisha died. One day, unless Christ returns, we will die. We'll be put in the grave and that's it. It's not about us. It's about the Lord. And I think maybe the fact that we have very little about uh, 40 years of his ministry reveals that as well. We don't have a biography of Elisha. Every single thing he did in every chapter we've studied, it's about the Lord. We are so tertiary to God. Even the great hall of faith Yes, we recognize that God gave these men faith, but it was about God. And we must be eclipsed. We must be uh, decreased and brought low. Isn't that true? And same with our church. It's not about Pilgrim Bible Church. It's not about the elders or the members. It's about the Lord. Christ is the head. It's a good reminder that even great and godly men or people will die because it's not about us. It's liberating to a degree to know that it's not about me. Yes, we ought to represent the Lord well, but it is not about us. May we, brothers and sisters, decrease. If you have a performance development plan and you told your boss, I want to decrease. The world says, get more, make a name for yourself. What are your achievements? What's on your your wall of fame? 
the Bible says, decrease. Elisha died and they buried him. Well, we transition to an interesting phrase and it's int- we see the word now, as Thomas pointed out, that's usually a transitional word at the end of verse 20. Now the bands of the Moabites would invade the land in the spring of the year. So we're going to move to a third object lesson with a possible explanation in the text and I'll offer some explanation, but we we saw the arrow shot, we saw the arrows pounded, now we're going to see something that is very unusual. Verse 21, as they were burying a man, behold, they saw a marauding band, apparently a band of Moabites that was just mentioned, and they cast the man, unnamed, into the grave of Elisha. And when that man touched the bones, he fell down. They probably dropped him in the hole, pulled off the rock and dropped him in the hole. And when he touched the bones of Elisha, that dead man, he revived and stood up in that grave. I believe the Lord was showing them where the power of Elisha came from. Elisha was dead. He was dead and buried wrapped up and bombed or whatever they did, he was dropped down in that grave or put in and, and the stone covered it most likely. The Lord showed them where the power of Elisha came from. Can dead men raise the dead? Dead men can't do anything. They surely can't raise the dead, but the Lord God Almighty did. What an object lesson. That here is... It's just, it's so simple. They were burying a man. It's not about that man. It's really not about Elisha either because he's dead. God is telling them, I can raise the dead. And you need to listen to my prophets. As a matter of fact, in the next chapter, we'll hear about Jonah. In 1425, Jonah the prophet is mentioned. There are obviously other prophets throughout the Bible, and the prophets were the spokespersons of God. It wasn't about the prophets. They were the servants of God. And God is telling Israel, I can raise the dead, but yes, I speak to you through my prophets, and I can use a dead prophet to accomplish a mighty work, a miracle. I don't even need him to be alive. Because Elisha didn't do the miracle, God did the miracles. The Israelites needed the Lord's instruction and the warnings from the mouth of his prophets. Maybe um, the kings were trusting too much in the prophets. When he came and he said those words, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, just like Elisha did when Elijah was departing. Uh, there in verse 14, He wanted power maybe from uh, Elisha, but the power belongs to the Lord. Yes, God used his prophets to accomplish his purposes and to speak to Israel and Judah what they were to do. And when you read at the end of, uh, near the end of Kings in chapter 17, when Israel was carried into captivity by the Assyrians, it says that they didn't listen to the prophets of God. And God used that phrase to describe them, my servants, 
the prophets. So even a dead prophet is still a servant of God. To Even though like uh, Abel, though he's dead, he still speaks. And he points to one person, to the Lord. The Lord can raise the dead from a dead body. The bones being touched. So, three object lessons. The first to say that I'm, I'm going, the victory is going to be from me. But then the second was dependent upon the king hitting the arrows. And so he would only win, end up winning three battles. And this last one to show all Israel where life and power comes from, from the Lord. Now before we move on, it's a good chance to remind ourselves hermeneutically that we must mark the differences between descriptive and prescriptive passages, which is obvious. That's lesson five. Mark the difference between descriptive and prescriptive passages. If we took this as prescriptive, I mean, can you imagine we're going to be throwing dead bodies on dead bodies? It's absurd. But people in history, and even today, take descriptive passages as if they're prescriptive. It's very important. And this is an obvious example, I trust. Um, But this is descriptive. We can learn lessons, I trust, and draw them out, applications for our own hearts. But it's descriptive. Scriptive. And you can hear a whole series on hermeneutics if you go to Sermon Audio, probably at least 50 messages on hermeneutics, maybe 25. But see John if you have any questions on descriptive and prescriptive passages. Verse 22, the transition word again, if you will, now Hazael, king of Aram, had oppressed Israel all the days of who? Jehoahaz. Now they've went back. The author is going back. We've been speaking about Joash and his working with Elisha, but he goes to his father and talking about Hazael, king of Aram, had oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. And that was, he reigned for 16 years. You can see that in verse 1 of this chapter. Why did Aram oppress the Israelites for 16 years? Why did Aram do that? Yeah. And God was, God was angry with his people and he punished them. So that's why that happened. Aram oppressed Israel because the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, verse 3. But, and that's how verse 23 begins. It's one of those, like Martin Lloyd-Jones on Ephesians 2.8, but God. Here, it's in 2 Kings 13, verse 23, but the Lord. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and turned to them. Why? Because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence until now. This, I believe, is the centerpiece of our chapter. 
That's why I gave the title, Magnify the Grace of God. We just had this last object lesson, which really is rooted in this truth of who God is. And our sixth lesson is this. Dwell much on the character of God. Dwell much on the character of God. Praise the Lord for this or his threefold acts of grace, compassion, and turning to his covenant people. And five times we hear that they are the object to them, on them, 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 all because of God's grace, his compassion, and his turning. Let's unpack these these words. First, he is gracious, or he shows favor. He feels pity or he showers mercy. Was Israel living well at this time? Were they following God wholeheartedly? No. They were idolaters. They were still worshiping the totem poles. Yet, or to use the word here, but the Lord was gracious. Even though he gave them into the hand of Aram, he also gave them grace. And second, He gave them compassion. He gave them love or, again, mercy. And third, He turned to them. This is not maybe as obvious as grace or compassion, but think of the the opposite case. When God turns His back on His people or someone. He's turning toward them. He's looking at them. He's facing them. He has regard for them. The look of God. When God turns to us in mercy, it's His grace and mercy combined. He is looking upon His people. He turned to them. If you fell down and people keep walking by you, they're not gracious. But if someone turns to help you, they are merciful. Dwell much on the character of God. Further, it says that He's gracious and compassionate and turning to them because of His covenant faithfulness, because of His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Ultimately, there were these promises for the land to Abraham and even more importantly, the seed. The seed. They'll have this seed like this, the sand of the seashore, like the stars in heaven. All the world, all the nations would be blessed in Abraham. And ultimately, as Galatians 3.16 says, the seed was Christ. So, God has this covenant faithfulness. If you want to consider God's grace, His compassion, His turning, even His covenant faithfulness, You can look at Exodus 34 when God turned to Moses and proclaimed his name, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, abounding in loving kindness, showing mercy to thousands. Or you could look at Jesus in the Gospels. See the character of our Lord, his grace, his compassion, how he turned to lepers, how he turned to the women that were, that were wicked, how he turned to the publicans and the sinners. Dwell much on the character of God, on the character of Christ. And this beautiful phrase, that He would not destroy them. 
On the one hand, he did destroy them, but then ultimately he would not he would not cast them from his presence until now, which I take that to be the author is writing, maybe Ezra or someone else. Uh, it's unclear, but Ezra probably wrote Chronicles, not Kings. Um, we don't know. But until now, at least until the northern kingdom was carried away in 722 B.C., potentially, uh, Israel was obliterated and carried away into exile and all their kings end, ended. That's 60 years from this point. Yet God had compassion. Even when they were destroyed, He still had compassion on them, obviously, and brought the Savior to them, our Lord Jesus. So let us have faith and be encouraged as we dwell on the character of God, even toward idolatrous Israel. He was gracious. He was compassionate. He turned to them. And the new covenant is so much better. Verse 24. When Hazael, king of Aram, died, Ben-Hadad, the second, his son became king in his place. Now back to verse 25, then Jehoash. So we had a phrase about his father, and now here it says, Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities which he had taken in war from the hand of Jehoahaz's father. How many times? Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. Where did we hear about that three times? Right here. Based on what? What was that object lesson? Hitting the arrows three times. So it's immediately fulfilled. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. The king listened to Elisha, at least partly, and they were blessed. The promise of God that they would strike Aram three times occurred and they recovered their lost cities. So generally... Lesson seven, even outward obedience to the word of God will result in blessings. When people follow God's path, even if when they're unconverted, there are blessings that result. And even this evil king and evil Israel was blessed as they had some partial obedience and listened to the prophet of God. How much more if we have inward obedience from the heart as true believers and consistently obey Those who come to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Who seek Him regularly. And this king did not seek God regularly, yet he was blessed. How much more will we be blessed? Not earning salvation, but obedience has good fruits. Is our obedience merely outward? You may get blessed by outward obedience, but we want to have inward obedience to receive the blessings of God. Well, our last lesson as we wind down, uh, what, what I found to be super encouraging, uh, we don't want to just fill out the note sheets. So think of the, the last, my last exhortation here is, by the power of Christ, let us prove ourselves by doing the lessons we learn from the book of Kings, or the books of Kings, because we did years ago, 
Elijah and Elisha. The Bible is full of lessons and we've only scratched the surface. But by the power of Christ, let us prove ourselves by doing the lessons. We're not only academically making observations on the text. We want to imbibe it and do it. James 1.22, of course. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. We must be doers, brothers and sisters. We cannot merely fill up our notebooks and our note sheets and even regurgitate, I like that lesson. We should seek to glean the lessons from the scripture and then go and do them. Whatever we're studying in our own devotions, but surely in the teaching and preaching in the church, we don't want to hear that, oh, that was a great message. We want ourselves and you to do the word, to prove ourselves by the power of Christ, by the power of the Spirit, to be doers. Even from Second Kings, God's word is profitable for teaching, for correction, for instruction, that we might be trained to live in righteousness. Even Second Kings. I hope we've been reminded of that. Even these stories, we can see how not to live, how we should live, and we can learn a lot about our God. His grace, His compassion, His mercy. Yes, His wrath and His rebukes. But Lord, help us to be doers of the word. To take these lessons and do them. Starting with myself. So in review. Tears alone are no sign of true allegiance to God. You can grieve at a funeral. You can grieve over many things. And and we ought to grieve. And maybe we should have more tears than we do over our sins, over people's souls. But tears alone, even sincere tears, are no sign of true allegiance to God. Second, let us be convinced that every victory we have belongs to the Lord. We see it over and over in the Psalms and the historical passages. It's the Lord that gives the victory. The same for us today. Third, temporary acts of obedience are no sign of saving grace. He did what he should, sort of. Fourth, even great and godly men will die because it's not about us. He's greater, much greater. We should pale. We should decrease. Let let us make that our goal. Fifth, mark the difference between prescriptive, excuse me, descriptive and prescriptive passages. We're not going to take a dead body and throw them on a dead body of a believer. But God used that to teach us and them a lot about Himself. Sixth, and, and the centerpiece of our text, dwell much on the character of God. From Genesis to Revelation, this is the book of God. And about God. Seventh, even outward obedience to the word of God will result in blessings. He did what he was told and he was blessed. We want inward obedience. And eighth, by the power of Christ, let us prove ourselves by doing the lessons we learned from the book of Kings. May God help us to do that. Let's conclude with prayer. Our great God, you are the God of grace, the God of compassion. Lord, you turned to us in Christ. You caused us to be born again. And then every day, 
since. You have been so faithful, so patient, so kind. Lord, we worship you. We magnify you, our God. Lord, may we learn from the book of Kings how not to live and how we should live. May we marvel at your providential power and your sovereignty over the nations. And Lord, we find ourselves too much in the fickle and sinful acts of Israel. Lord, may we persevere by the power of Christ, by the power of your Spirit. May we put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. May we take these examples and take these lessons, Lord, and do them, that you would be exalted, that Christ would be fully formed in us, that we would continue to press on considering Jesus the prophet, the priest, the king. We thank you for such a great salvation. And may these studies only be a springboard to to keep going and to endure to the end by your grace and for your glory. Amen.